Happy Easter, everyone. We rejoice together as a church family and with friends because Christ is risen indeed. Amen? Our message for this Easter celebration service today is called God's Salvation from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. You know, I didn't mention it a few weeks ago, but now I can say that it's been actually a little more than a year that our entire world has been under the grips of this COVID-19 pandemic. If I think back to around this time last year, we were still trying to figure out what to make uh, of this virus. It's almost funny to think about how we were wondering if we could actually meet in person for Easter 2020. Now it seems like we've been meeting online for ages. Since those days, we've all experienced maybe the most difficult time that we've collectively faced in our generation. What's happened? Schools from kindergartens to universities have all shifted to being at home. Simple daily activities like shopping, dining out, and socializing have become super stressful. Wearing masks, using hand sanitizer, and staying one meter apart from others is now the social norm. We've either lost our jobs or have felt, work from, have, have felt stress from our work like never before. All sicknesses are worrisome and visits to the hospital now feel like they are all high risk. Loneliness, anxiety, depression, and even suicide are concerns for ourselves and others around us. We have suffered loss, uh, the loss of so many loved ones in our families and in our social circles, and we, can, and, and we haven't even had the opportunity to properly say goodbye and grieve with others. If there's any time that, we need, that we've needed hope, not fluffy positivity, but real hope, it is now. But I actually would say that we've always needed a greater hope, but now we feel that need for a greater hope. So this Easter, let's put our attention on God's salvation that is true, that is a living hope for all of us here, no matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. This is related to the one thing for today's sermon, the main message from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, which is put our hope in God's salvation, focusing our faith in Christ. We're going to look at how 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 gives us three specific aspects of God's salvation that anchor our hope as we focus our faith on Jesus. First, put our hope in the secure inheritance of God's salvation. Second, put our hope in the refining process of God's salvation. And third, put our hope in the joyful journey of God's salvation. Peter the Apostle wrote this open letter to the churches in these Roman provinces in Asia Minor. He wrote this letter in AD, around AD 62-63 at a time that was extremely difficult for believers as they faced terrible persecution for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. It was in this situation that Peter wrote these words. Let's read this scripture now. 
1 Peter 1, 3-9, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Please join me now in prayer before we go any further. Gracious Father, may the truth of your salvation impact us deeper and more personally than ever before this day as we celebrate your resurrection. We confess that all we need, we all need this message of hope. It is the truth. Transform our hearts and lives today through your word. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and take a look at the first part. Well, let's read first, look at 1, Timothy, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, the secure inheritance. And the first overall lesson is God causes his people to be born again into a secure inheritance. In these verses before us, at the very beginning of this entire book, Peter wrote how Uh, how God is the architect of this great salvation for his people. God the Father planned every detail of history. God the Spirit did the transforming work in his people's hearts. God the Son shed his blood on the cross to wash away our sins. And then Peter shares these verses of praise in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that the simple way to understand the meaning of blessed is happy? So God was absolutely and totally happy about his plan of salvation and is totally happy about the execution of his plan of salvation. Even right now among us, God is pleased and happy about his salvation. Now Peter wrote more got more personal and said in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God's salvation is all because of his great mercy towards his people. And his great mercy causes people to be born again. This meant that God would give people a new spiritual, uh, a, a spiritual rebirth, given a new heart to desire and know God, enabled now to trust God and given given forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God by grace. It is a definitive, life-changing experience that is a gift from God. Then the apostle said that the Christians, that Christians were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope is real. Not just blind optimism, not just a neat mind trick, but based on the historical event of Jesus' resurrection. 
Let me explain why this is significant. The core message, the core Christian message that we call the good news is based on the historical event of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Historical events affect the course of future events in our world. The more significant the historical event, the more it impacts the course of other events that follow. For example, if Napoleon was the winner of the Battle of Waterloo in June 1815, who knows, maybe the whole world, the majority of the world would be speaking French instead of English now. Or if Japan won the Battle of Midway in World War II in June 1942. Who knows, maybe Indonesia and other Asian countries would still be Japanese colonies today. But the reason the world is exactly the way that it is right now is because of the historical events that have already happened and have affected the course of, of the events that have led to make the world what it is today. In the same way, the historical facts that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead have altered the fate of humans for eternity and personally for us. This is what we celebrate today on Easter. Jesus was crucified. He died and was buried on Good Friday. He was three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, buried in a tomb But early that Sunday morning when three women, Mary Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of Jesus, and Joanna, they went to take care of Jesus' body. And they saw saw that the tomb was empty. And so they ran back after an angel had told them that the Lord had risen. They ran back and rushed to the disciples to tell them. Peter ran to the tomb himself to to see. And Jesus was indeed not there. It was only later that day that Jesus came to where all the disciples were and they saw and touched him and they talked to him and they even ate meals with him. In that short time that Jesus was back, over 500 people were eyewitnesses that Jesus was truly alive again. People like Peter and countless others over the last 2,000 years actually have staked their lives on this historical fact on what he believed, on what they believed their living hope was. In verses 4 and 5, Peter took a little bit more space reassuring the church that their inheritance would be eternal life with God and in their own resurrected and glorified bodies. There were four phrases that he used to describe this inheritance. He said that it was imperishable. He said that that means it will not decay, it, will not, it, it would not be corrupted. It, was, it is undefiled. It is pure and untainted. It is unfading. It will retain its wonderful, pristine nature for etern- uh, character for eternity. It is kept in heaven for you. It means literally that it is guarded with an eye constantly on it, kept under God's uh, close observation and perfect watch. This is the great promise that those who believe in Jesus Christ are born into this inheritance. They're not born into something tragic. They're not born again into something hopeless. They were now given this new spiritual life that would end in something infinitely meaningful and hopeful. Peter went on to expand on this truth in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for his salvation to be revealed in the last time. He said that those who are born again while living on earth as elect exiles are protected by all the muscle and might of their heavenly Father. That's why in another place in the New Testament, believers are called to take up their shield of faith because they will certainly face many fire-tipped arrows of the enemy to pursue, perhaps to pursue idols that they think will provide security or satisfaction to harden their hearts and select uh, to, to just obey when they feel like it or to abandon Christ altogether. Following Jesus in this world is challenging. It will, we will face our challenging situations. These arrows are the ways that we will be tempted to sin in response to them. But we wield our faith now, trusting that it is God's power guarding us so that, so that we are never out of God's care. We are never out of God's protection on our way to paradise. But what if we feel like our faith is just too weak? You know, I've certainly felt that way, and I would guess that many of us have felt this way at times, especially during the pandemic. The thing we have to keep preaching to ourselves is that when we are exercising faith, it is not based on us at all, but on the object that we are putting our faith in. For example, let's say that I had to fight Thanos, just plain old me, without any superpowers. I would get crushed, wouldn't I? Even if I had immense genuine confidence in myself, being very well rested, doing CrossFit for a few weeks, or even taking some Muay Thai lessons, I would still get crushed. In my own strength, even if I sincerely believed that I could, I would not stand a chance against Thanos. But let's say that all the Avengers, all the Guardians of the Galaxy, and all of their superhero friends fought on my behalf, I would certainly be secure to also engage in the fight now, just holding up my shield of faith, probably made out of vibranium, and trust that these superheroes have, gotten, have got it taken care of. I'm guarded well. You see, the strength of our faith is not based on us in any way, but rather on the reliability of the object of our faith. Even though Thanos is powerful, those superheroes will always win in the end. We might face tremendous, powerful forces outside us as well as inside us to tempt us to abandon Christ. But we are strong and secure in God's power that guards us. Being born again is by faith alone in Christ alone that He cleanses us from our sins, pays our debts, a debt of sin and gives us new life as we carry on throughout our earthly lives. Through all its twists and turns, we continue to live by faith alone in Christ alone. We can know and trust that our future inheritance is secure. At this time, let me share a life application for this first part of putting our hope in the secure inheritance of God's salvation. Life application one how can I get to know the object of my faith, Jesus Christ, better? This is in order to develop a greater hope in your secure inheritance. 
We've been saying grow in intimacy with Christ together a lot in this season as a church. And we'll continue to say it even now. Be intentional to start a new Bible reading plan this season by yourself or with someone else, a friend, a life group member, your spouse, maybe even your children. Be intentional to build in much-needed time with God in worship, in prayer, to grow that intimacy with Jesus. And as we do, we'll grow in confidence in Jesus, the object of our faith. So the first overall lesson is that God causes His people to be born again into a secure inheritance. Therefore, we can put our hope in God's salvation, focusing our faith on Christ. Now let's, let's go ahead and look at the second aspect of God's salvation to put our hope in as we, faith, as we focus our faith on Christ. The second overall, uh, let's look at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 now, the refining process. The second overall lesson is that God's people grieve over trials but rejoice in the refining process. The reality of the church's current situation was a stark contrast to the promised future inheritance. And we just talked about that. Paul wrote in verse 6, In this you rejoice. They rejoiced in their secure inheritance, like we just talked about in verses 3 through 5. But look at the contrast. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So although they rejoiced in their secure inheritance, they were also grieved by the various trials that they were facing. They lived in a society that was hostile to Christians. They faced difficulties that challenged their faith in Jesus Christ. Back in the first century, public opinion of Christians was fueled by suspicion, prejudice, and intolerance. There were a lot of false reports throughout the Roman Empire about them. There were rumors that they were cannibalistic because people had heard that they ate Christ's body and drank Christ's blood. They, and rumors that they were incestuous because they called one another brothers and sisters. They were easy, easy targets of hatred. Nero blamed the entire Christian community for causing a great fire that burned down much of the city of Rome, even though it was actually probably him who did it. Peter stated here that grieving over trials is a natural, acceptable response. The thing about the Bible is that it doesn't try to hide the messes and the pains that we inevitably experience in life. Peter says, it is, it, that, Peter says that it is in light of the promise uh, of eternal life in heaven that the messiness and the painfulness experienced in our lives uh, is only for a little while. The Bible doesn't try to cover it up. The Bible doesn't try to hide and ignore this reality. And the special term that we've been learning uh, throughout uh, during this time of the pandemic is the word lamenting. In the Bible, people of faith lament by talking to God about the pain that they face for the purpose of renewing their confidence in God. We don't have to deny the sorrow and anguish that we feel before God. We can tell God. God can handle those kinds of things that come out of our mouths. In fact, this is what Tim Keller wrote about how to view our grief in his book called On Death. Quote, Christians have a hope that can be rubbed into our sorrow 
and anger, the way salt is rubbed into meat. Neither stifling grief nor giving way to despair is right. Neither repressed anger nor unchecked rage is good for your soul, but pressing hope into your grief makes you wise, compassionate, humble, and tender-hearted. Grief fully yet with grieve, fully yet with profound hope. So it's okay to lament over your family or business going bankrupt or losing your job. It's okay to lament that you are lonely, depressed, or suffering. It's okay to lament over traumas or abuses that you've experienced. It's okay to lament over issues with your children or in your marriage. It's okay to lament over loved ones getting serious illnesses or passing away. Peter also taught that these trials could be handled with faith. Just look at how the apostle stated how trials strengthen our faith in verse 7. He wrote this, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter used an illustration that people in the first century would definitely have been familiar with. That's the refining process of metals. For example, crude gold is mined but has plenty of impurities in it. So it has to be refined. It needs to be heated up with a, by a, uh, in a fire um, to over 1,000 degrees Celsius so, so that it melts down and all the unwanted metals and other stuff separate or burn out. Peter says that their faith was refined through the fires of the trials that they were facing. Earlier, he hinted that this refining process might actually be necessary, that one of God's purposes in bringing people into these trials was so that their faith could be purified and strengthened. Faith can be refined in the trials of life. We are weaned off of our dependence on ourselves or anyone or anything else in these trials. Instead, we learn dependence on God alone. And this is a great thing. We, find, we begin to find no pleasure in empty pursuits and cheap substitutes, but instead, in those refining fires, we learn to wait for God's strength and God's grace to sustain us. We realize there's nothing better. We grow thankful for what we have and content. There is a healthy dissatisfaction for the best this world has to offer. But now instead, we look forward to paradise with God forever. And this, this faith in Christ now is more precious than any amount of gold. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may our hearts not become overwhelmed by the trials that we face in life so that we lose our faith in God. May we not become cynical, hardened, or numb to the refining process of God's salvation that He is doing in us. The truth is, is that God loves us with a, as, uh, like a perfect heavenly Father, that, like the perfect heavenly Father that He is. 
So he is developing in us one of the most valuable things that we can have in our lives. I read this book a while ago called Grit by Angela Duckworth. One of the things that she writes is that grit, which she defines as passion and perseverance for long-term goals, is one of the best things that parents can instill into their kids. For example, we have our kids learn piano, not necessarily because we expect them to become concert pianists, but to learn how to grit out a piece of music from starting off not knowing it at all, not being able to play it at all, to learning the notes, the tempo, the dynamic, just step by step learning those things, practicing so that the neurons and the muscles build strong connections so that they learn how not to give up and to appreciate the beauty of music as they play. If earthly parents know that this is good for their kids, even though we are flawed, how much more does our perfect Heavenly Father also want to develop faith grit in our lives? May I add one more comment to some of us here? Maybe some of us for whom all of this stuff, there's the, maybe there's some of us here for whom all of this stuff is new or unfamiliar. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're learning more about Jesus and faith in Jesus. And God may be using some difficult situations in your life to get your attention. God is helping you see that actually the most valuable thing in life is faith in this biblical message of the gospel in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you spiritual rebirth. Maybe there are others here who have wandered pretty far from the Lord this past year. The different trials and tests that you've been facing are actually the loving hand of discipline by our Heavenly Father. He's been refining you in some of those fires so that your faith, no matter how weak or small it feels, can come out towards Jesus, who is trustworthy, who is the reliable object of your faith. So there's actually even a greater purpose now to the trials that we face than just mere faith grit. It is also so that Christ ultimately may be praised and glorified and honored. We may lament now in our lives. We may have so many unanswered questions uh, during our lifetimes, we may have to carry many scars from wounds that we've endured in our lifetimes. But in the end, when Jesus Christ comes back in full revelation, there will be complete closure as God reveals himself and the purposes of all these events and circumstances in our lives. So here's another life application this time for the second part of putting our hope in the refining process of God's salvation. Life application number two, how can I rejoice in the trials that I'm facing right now? We can definitely grieve before the Lord honestly. Like I said, He can take it. He wants to take it from us. And He wants to talk to you about it. We can also identify what is being refined, refined in our hearts and in our lives as we reflect on our on our own, uh, and as also we may discuss with uh, close friends or disciples and mentors or family members. This is your God-given opportunity to learn 
how to depend on, how to cherish, and how to love Jesus more in our lifetimes. There's nothing worth more than this. So the second overall lesson is that God's people grieve over trials, but rejoice in the refining process. Therefore, we can put our hope in God's salvation, focusing our faith on Christ. Praise the Lord. Now let's tackle the third and final aspect of God's salvation to put our hope in as we focus our faith on Christ. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9 now. The joyful journey. The third overall lesson is that God multiplies God-glorifying love, faith, and joy within His people. It's really important to notice what happens as our faith gets refined through trials, as Peter began to explain in the tail end of verse 7. To say it again in a different way, the end result of faith that lasts until Jesus comes back is this unfettered, abounding, wholehearted worship of God. Then in verse 8, Paul, Peter wrote even more about this. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do, not know, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is so strange and crazy if you think about it. What else comes out of God's work of salvation from being born again through the faith-refining process of trials while waiting faithfully for the promised inheritance that God's people grow in love for Him? They grow in belief in Him. They grow in their joy in Him. It is inexpressible. There's nothing quite like it. There's nothing that quite explains it, but it is glorious because it is all a gracious and powerful work of God in a person. This is what Peter himself experienced in life. Definitely, he didn't, ex- he didn't expect the up and down journey that it became when Jesus simply invited him to follow him and to make disciples, make, become, fisher, become a fisher of men. Those early days were exciting, but they were full of teaching moments, mostly when Peter put his foot in his mouth. The last days of Jesus' life on earth were especially hard and were especially forgettable. Jesus prayed in the garden. Peter fell asleep. Jesus was arrested there. Peter tried to fight back valiantly, but the Lord just seemed to just give himself up. Peter pursued closely for a chance to maybe help Jesus escape, But while waiting at the high priest's house, the realities and fears crept in and he denied knowing Jesus not once, but three times. For three days he was in absolute misery and despair because of how he'd failed Jesus. But after all the reports that Jesus was alive, Peter was still drawn to him and sought him out. And there on the beach uh, at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus forgave Peter and gave him this specific commission to feed his sheep. And Peter embraced this for the rest of his life. He could introduce himself as an an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he knew before God that he was a nobody. He grew in love with Jesus, grew in believing in Jesus. He grew in his joy as he followed Jesus, even though his life got harder and harder. So the wise old apostle tells the church this, as if reinforcing to them that these are, the true state, these are true statements to the first century church and all generations after. Although they never saw Jesus, they know what He taught and what He did for them in dying on the cross. 
They understood and appreciated this all the more through the trials that they went through so that they truly did love Jesus more and more. Although they did not see Jesus physically in their situations, they did experience His forgiveness, cleansing, comfort, and new life. It was undeniable in their lives. So they truly did believe Jesus more and more. And although their trials might not end, uh, and they would inevitably face uh, more to come in their earthly lives, they could still truly rejoice in Jesus. In fact, their joy became more and more inexpressible and filled with the weight of God's presence and peace and worthiness. This passage ends with verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. An important goal of our faith is to experience God's salvation at the end of it all. The outcome means end or purpose. And the end or purpose of their faith is the realization of God's salvation for themselves. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is confidence in our hope and assurance of what is not seen. In our lifetimes, the final stage of God's salvation um, the, our, our return home, our, the complete restoration of God's kingdom will be a reality. And therefore, faith will not be needed anymore because it will be seen right before our very eyes. We can cherish, therefore, the refining process now. Now we can cherish the journey along the, along the way. But we have to remember that the end goal is the best by far. This is like the idea of a, of a road trip. Back in 2019, my family did a massive road trip in the United States. We started down in the southern part of the United States in a, in a city in Florida called Tampa. Then we drove up the east coast of the United States, <clears throat> stopping by cities like Jacksonville, Raleigh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York City. And then we drove into the middle of the country to cities like Grand Rapids, Traverse City, and Chicago. And finally, we drove down back south through cities like Indianapolis, Nashville, Atlanta, and ended up back in Tampa. It was a long, hard trip, but we loved the journey. It was so much joy to visit friends and loved ones in these places. It was so much joy to drive and talk in the car as a family. It was so much joy to eat all these kinds of foods from different regions of the country and to try new stuff like Chick-fil-A for the very first time. It was so much joy to talk about our ministry in Indonesia and get others excited about it as well. And these are all the joys of a road trip. But the end goal of a road trip is to get somewhere. And our goal for this particular road trip in 2019 was to get partners on our team who would pray for us and support us. And our end goal was to get back to Indonesia, our home, to serve the Lord there where he called our family. For the Christian, Peter taught that God was responsible for them of being born again and starting this journey. And they could cherish the, the secure promises and inheritance of God's salvation. He then taught that although they would, would grieve by various trials, they could also rejoice in them as God's way to refine their faith. They could cherish the refining process of God's salvation. The apostle ended by explaining how their love 
belief in and joy in Jesus would grow and develop. They could cherish the joyful journey of God's salvation. And the purpose of all this was so that they could make it until the end of the journey, reuniting with their spiritual family in their eternal home with the Lord God forever. I want to invite those who might be sensing the Lord, calling them to begin this journey today, to take up that step of faith to trust and follow Jesus. Of course, we want you to count the cost. Following Jesus is not easy, as I hope that you've learned through this message. But it is trusting that Jesus saves us, takes care of us, and guards us until the glorious promises of God are fully realized in eternity. When God makes you born again, you will believe in Jesus as your Savior and choose to follow Him as a disciple. And if you do this today, make sure that you also let someone else here know as well so that, so that we can affirm your decision and follow up with, with any questions you have and help you with the next steps that you, need to t- you can take as a Christian. I want to share one last life application for this third part of putting our hope in the joyful journey of God's salvation. Life application three, how can I start, get back on, or appreciate my journey today? I want to give this invitation, like I said, to start or get back on this journey. As I've mentioned just now, God maybe today is calling you to take that first step along in this journey. Or maybe this past season or year you fell off track. But Easter and other holidays like Easter are helpful to reflect on the journey that God has put you on and to think about how God has cultivated your love, faith, and joy in Him. And just to give thanks and praise to Jesus. So the third overall lesson is that God multiplies God-glorifying love, faith, and joy within His people. Therefore, we can put our hope in God's salvation, focusing our faith on Jesus Christ. We'll go back to our live Easter celebration now to respond to God's word together as well as to observe communion. God bless you.